You're listening to The Drag. Mark Condit sits in his car. It's almost midnight. He's parked at a hotel, the Courtyard by Marriott. It's right off Interstate 35, one of the several hotels along a stretch of access road in Round Rock, just north of Austin. The parking lot wraps around the building. Almost all of the cars are parked on the front and side parking lots, except for a few stragglers who park alone behind the building, probably to avoid door dings and rear ends. He's in his dad's Nissan Pathfinder, facing a hedge that lines the backside of a parking lot. During the day, the sky above the road here is wrapped in cable lines, but it's dark, and the only source of light comes from the street lamps overhead and inside the car. We don't know what was going through Mark Condit's mind, whether he was scared or not. He doesn't know that the FBI has detained his roommate, Colin Thomas. But what he does know is that investigators are on to him. He must be aware that they know where he lives. He's the one behind the serial bombings in Austin, so the fact that emergency services arrived at his house doesn't seem like a coincidence. He turns on his phone. It's been off for hours. And then he begins to record his story. I'm Ashley Miznazi, and you're listening to the final episode of this season of Darkness, about the serial bomber that terrorized Austin, Texas in 2018. It's after midnight, early in the morning of March 21st, 2018. Interim Police Chief Brian Manley leaves the command center that has served as the investigation's home base. It's been 20 days since the first bomb exploded, and throughout the bomber's series of attacks, two people have died, five others have been injured, and a metropolitan area of more than one million people has been living in fear. The past few weeks have been some of the toughest of Chief Manley's career. He's eager to let Austinites know that they're safe. The bomber is in custody, and they no longer have to live in fear. But first... They have to capture Mark Condit, who they just traced to a hotel parking lot. Many of the investigators were already in the area. Since the bombings happened during South by Southwest, Austin's biggest festival of the year, all the hotels within Austin city limits were booked, so they had to stay in the suburbs. Chief Manley is used to working with law enforcement from surrounding towns, so he knows the Round Rock police chief. The two chiefs meet up as they prepare to face the bomber. They park a quarter mile away from where Mark Condit sits in his truck. Investigators survey the parking lot from a small plane and a helicopter. From above, they can see that Condit's vehicle is one of the few in the back of the property, hidden from the interstate. It's a maroon Nissan Pathfinder parked beneath a tree. From overhead, investigators can see exactly where he is. They can even tell that the vehicle is running using thermal cameras. Mark Condit parked his car facing away from the hotel toward a side street and another hotel across the street. More cars gradually enter the Marriott parking lot. 
FBI agent Justin Wilson arrives in one of them and parks on the opposite side of the lot. But I, I had this gut feeling, you're sitting there, and I was looking up, and there was three surveillance aircraft up, and I'm like, if he watched long enough, he would tell that these things are, you know, they're, they're out there, they're far out, but you could definitely tell that, and also you probably, if you looked around hard enough, you're going to see a lot of U.S.-made vehicles around your area. Um, but uh, it's, uh, it's kind of, and it just got this gut feeling. I'm like, yeah, he's making peace with himself and figuring out what his last stand's going to be. And um, early on, just when you're dealing with this, I had just that gut feeling that I said, uh, he's not going to go, he's, unfortunately, I, you know, he's not going to be taken alive. Between the plane and the helicopter flying overhead and the dozens of law enforcement vehicles parked nearby, everyone's eyes are on the bomber. The Austin SWAT team is on the way with tactical vehicles to offer ballistic protection, just in case Mark Conda is armed. We know that this is a bomb maker. We wanted to afford our officers every level of safety while they attempted to take him into custody. The tactical vehicles are large and they move slowly. So the agents in the parking lot wait with their eyes glued to Condit's SUV. It's too dark for investigators to fully see what he's doing in his vehicle, but we now know he was busy recording his manifesto. The Austin Police Department SWAT team arrives. They're waiting for the officers driving the tactical vehicles when Mark Condit shifts his car out of park. By now, it's nearly 2 o'clock in the morning. He starts backing up to pull out of the parking lot. He's on the move. He drives around the building, exits the lot, and takes a right onto Interstate 35 Frontage Road accelerating toward the highway ramp. Got him eastbound, eastbound, coming up to 35 frontage, going to be taking a right turn southbound on uh, 35 frontage. He encounters an intersection, but it's under construction, so he hits his brakes. Cones are spread out, redirecting traffic, but it's confusing. And he's uh, red bald, he's stopped right now. He sits there on the intersection, maybe to get his bearings. In his rear-view mirror, a large white van slows to a stop behind him, and behind it, another. They're both about 20 feet long, with dark, tinted windows on the sliding doors. Mark Condit doesn't move. The officers wait in the vehicles behind him. Then, he's on the move again. We're through the intersection, southbound, still on uh, frontage from Old Settlers. Look for the laser. I got it on him. An impressive line of 40 vehicles, FBI, ATF, bomb squad, local police, follow him as he drives down the frontage road. Chief Manley and the Round Rock police chief wait until the cars zoom by them to join the chase, a safe distance behind. In a matter of seconds, law enforcement officers make their move. One of the vehicles gets in front of Mark Condit's SUV, cutting him off and one gets behind the SUV, rear-ending the bomber's vehicle. All right, uh, Vans made contact with him. Vans made contact with him. Condit's car slightly veers off the road, and he's stuck. He can't drive anywhere. Officers begin to leap out of their vehicles. One approaches the bomber's car and hits the window with the blunt end of his rifle. And then... Got an explosion. Got an explosion inside the vehicle. 
Mark Condit's SUV explodes. And then I hear over the radio, detonation, detonation, detonation. So I knew there had been an explosion. And knowing the power of his bombs, I was sickened in that moment to think of what I might see when I crested that hill and saw where this thing ended. Mark Condit had a bomb within arm's reach in his car. When the agent hit his window, he detonated it. The entire explosion was captured from aerial surveillance. Watching the footage, you can see a large flash. The explosion is about two car lengths in diameter, engulfing Condit's SUV and several members of the bomb squad. Miraculously, none of law enforcement agents were seriously injured. Only one suffered from minor injuries. But Mark Condit, the Austin bomber, was killed immediately. Remember when the bomber's roommate, Colin, was detained by the FBI? Well, after he's whisked into an FBI van, he ends up spending the night at a police station. The next morning, a detective comes in and asks Colin to follow him to his car that's parked in the garage. Colin's relieved. Finally, he thinks. He's ready for the detective to send him home and tell him it was just one big misunderstanding. He doesn't expect them to tell him that his roommate is a murderer and that he's dead. He's like, yeah, we got the guy. And I was like, oh, great. I can finally get back to whatever normal life I was living. Yeah, if he was your roommate. Like, that's when it got real. I was like, I was like what am I going to do? Where am I going to go? I couldn't think of anything. It's just like shock factor. The detective loads Colin into a vehicle to release him from custody. Colin can't go back home. His house is swarming with investigators collecting evidence. So the detective drops him off with some friends. Oh, I was paralyzed that night. I had PTSD that night. It was just like, I couldn't, like, I went to bed, like, and I woke up from a nightmare feeling paralyzed. I felt, I I didn't trust anything or anybody. I mean, I trusted people, but it was kind of like, I had to kind of, like, convince myself to trust people again. The constant reminders on the news and the ringing of his phone from local and national media only make things harder for Colin to process. He starts seeing online comments blaming the family and even him. People wonder, how could he not know his roommate was the bomber? God, the best way to really say it, you know, I don't, I think that he got what he deserved, I think. I think everybody feels that way. It's reality. It is what it is. He got what he deserved. Colin keeps replaying his memories with Condit on a constant loop in his mind. Condit helping Colin fix his computer, playing video games in their living room. His mind stops on the thought of Condit, just days earlier, asking Colin if he was the bomber. That day, Mark's dad calls Colin. I mean, I, I've tried, I'm really doing my best to leave the family out of it as much as I can. I'll give you some details, you know, because, but he was devastated. Called me up that day. He was just sad. You know? And sometimes I, you know, I, I've, yeah, I mean, I wasn't angry. I mean, that's understandable. I'm not going to be mad. You know, it's not his fault. You know, it's just, I feel like he was just, it's completely unexpected because nobody expects that from your own family. Back at the scene of the blast, the bomb squad is still investigating. They first approach the car with a remote control robot with a camera. 
They want to make sure there aren't any more explosives in the vehicle before they send their officers in. After they get the all clear, Officer Jay McCormick with the bomb squad moves in to investigate. I went down and physically went around the car um, and just kind of slowly opening the doors. Once I knew that he wasn't a threat, I started opening the doors so that way the robot can come through and start getting other stuff out of his car. One of the reasons none of the officers on the scene were seriously injured is because of the massive protective suits the bomb squad wears. Officer McCormick is wearing one to examine the remains of the vehicle, too. It's an 85-pound bomb suit designed to withstand direct explosions. It's thick and made of multiple layers of synthetic fabric with armored steel plates on the front and back of the upper body. It has a massive shoulder piece to protect the neck and ears, like a giant collar on a button-up shirt. It goes around a hard helmet with a visor so the agent can see through, like an old-school scuba helmet. Even though he's wearing this protective suit, Officer McCormick still has to be careful. I was just kind of observing and making sure that there wasn't anything out of the ordinary on those doors before I even tried to open them. And then once I did, it was just a, a slow kind of for what we call threat assessment as I'm doing that. And then once I feel safe with it, then I can pin them open. In his SUV, they found everything. Switches, wires, pipes, batteries, receipts from the stores he bought them, some dating back months. Investigators even found that hand-drawn map leading from the FedEx to the tripwire location. He had uh, essentially laid out, he was like he kept it all in one place. Um, and why he did that, I don't know, but it was one more reason that we knew, hey, he acted alone, he did this, this wasn't someone framed him or anything like that. It was, you know, beyond a, that was one of the reasons why we knew beyond a shadow of a doubt this was our guy. Inside, they found something more controversial. It would be disputed over for years to come. A 25-minute audio recording on Mark Condit's phone. A manifesto-style confession. Investigators choose not to release the tape out of fear of a copycat attack. That somebody would hear Condit's voice, his methods, his motivations, and repeat his crimes. There are some details they keep hidden just out of respect. They don't want to glorify Mark Condit. And this is something almost every investigator that we talked to mentioned. They didn't want him getting attention or fame from his crimes. You'll notice, if you haven't already, the investigators we spoke to in this podcast rarely refer to the bomber by his name. They just use the bomber, or the suspect, instead. Austin Police Chief Manley said all law enforcement agencies made a joint decision to keep the tape sealed. I felt just as strongly as my partners in FBI and ATF felt that this tape has no business in the public. Although I know there is a great amount of interest in the public, and I'm not going to do anything that is going to allow the next bomber in whatever city across America they may be planning this type of attack to be better at it because they learned from us releasing this tape. There is no value there. The bomber does not deserve the notoriety that this might bring to certain groups or certain people as they play his tape. 
he does not deserve to have this tape on the internet out there for anybody to listen to at any time. His voice does not need to be heard again. Now, my heart goes out to his family. They are victims in this as well. And everything I understand is they had no idea that their son was doing these things that was involved in this. And so I don't want to come across as being callous but to, to them. But this is a man who killed multiple people in our community and put our community at fear. And I don't believe that this tape needs to be public. He doesn't deserve that type of attention, nor should those details be made public to make the next person who would choose to do this better at doing it. Each investigator who listened to the tape had a lot to say, but no one person would give all the details. We were able to piece together his recording from different details revealed by each investigator. Here's everything we know about what Condit said that night. In his recording, Condit accounts for all seven bombs in detail, day by day. He talks about the victims, but he uses general terms. He doesn't mention any names or specific connections. But he does acknowledge that he left family members without loved ones. He even confesses to injuring an elderly woman without mentioning Hope Herrera by name. He asks himself, why did I do this? He calls himself a sociopath, saying he was trying to feel something. Because his entire life, he felt he wasn't able to feel certain emotions. He says he thought he felt something at one point during the bombings, but soon realized it was simply adrenaline, probably caused by a suspicion that law enforcement was closing in on him. Behind his voice and his words, he lacks any empathy or sympathy. He refers to himself as the Austin bomber and says he wants to kill as many people as he can. He admits he followed the case in the media and oftentimes thought, man, somebody needs to catch that guy. And he would separately say, wait a minute, that's me. He recounts mistakes he thinks he made that led to his capture. He berates himself for going into the FedEx to ship the packages, for driving in front of the store where employees and the video camera could see his red Ford Ranger. He's confident that's what identified him, and he says that's why emergency service officials showed up at his door. He thought they were actually undercover FBI agents, and that's why he never came home. He retraces more slip-ups he feels investigators missed. But more interestingly, he says all these things without actually knowing he was going to get captured that night. He doesn't know that at that moment, agents and officers are watching him in a hotel parking lot. If he survives the night, he says he'll lay low for a little while and probably take up serial killing. He thinks people question whether he, the Austin bomber, is sorry. In the recording, he says, I wish I was sorry, but I'm not. Here's FBI agent Jason Hudson again. So when you listen to this audio and he basically walks you through his entire process and everything that he's done and why he's done it, he essentially answered every question that we had as investigators, it was almost like watching a movie. Like he actually explained the plot 
and the reasoning for us. Chief Manley said the lack of emotion Condit expressed on the tape was scary. It was scary in the, the lack of emotion that was expressed as he was describing what he had done. Um, it was concerning that someone had reached this level to where they were carrying out these acts and people didn't see it coming. People didn't notice the change. It's scary in what could have happened based on things he said on that tape about things he might do in the future. And then also with things that we located in his residence that would have allowed him to make even more sophisticated bombs in the future. So there was a lot that uh, came of that tape. The decision to keep the tape from the public sparked controversy. Some people saw it as a secrecy, including Austin NAACP President Nelson Linder. He thinks there's more to the story. The truth is not out. I, I'm clear about that. There's no doubt. That some, some truth was definitely covered up. I think we can say that safely. I have no problem saying that at all. So by not having his message, they could have known that. We didn't. I was very fascinated by this guy's background, the people he knew, uh, his skill level, the things he did. But they wanted to shut down that conversation so they didn't play the tape. And I think that tape itself is very important. And I try to make him play it manly wouldn't. I think it was a major mistake. Major mistake. Here's what Chief Manley had to say about those concerns. This tape was not only viewed by police officers. The federal agencies looked at it. The district attorney, the federal attorneys, everybody got to look at this to ensure that we didn't miss something, that there wasn't a nexus to terrorism or hate or something like that that they would have followed up on. So although we did not release this publicly, it was viewed outside of just a law enforcement agency, but instead by the prosecutorial agencies as well. So yes, there is secrecy and that we're not going to release this to the public, but it was viewed by many groups outside of just the police department. As far as what's on the tapes and making that make people feel better, I don't think there's anything that could make our community or especially our victims' families or the victims that survived themselves feel any better about this. People want to understand why. I want to know why. We're three years later. I still don't know why, and I've come to the understand that I never will but I think it's, it's human nature to want to rationally understand why somebody does something so irrational. The decision to keep the tape from the public wasn't the only thing that caused backlash for law enforcement. They announced they'd use the tape to rule out the possibility that Mark Condit was a domestic terrorist. They said it's because he didn't reveal a purpose in his motivation for the killings. The FBI's website defines domestic terrorism as, quote, violent criminal acts committed by individuals and or groups to further ideological goals stemming from domestic influences, such as those of political, religious, social, racial, or environmental nature. Investigators say they found no evidence that Mark Condit's motivations matched with this definition. Chief Manley describes in a press conference that the cell phone recording was, quote, the cry of a very challenged young man. It's a label that's used repeatedly with mass killers, specifically white men. They're often labeled as lone wolves, troubled, quiet. After Chief Manley's statement, 
Observers and activists were outraged. Sherilyn Eiffel, President and Director Counsel of the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund, tweeted, quote, Remember how they talked about innocent black children like Trayvon, Tamir, or young men like Freddie Gray? Chief Manley defends his decision by saying he is sticking to the law and that he's not a prosecutor. Later in the month, he joins a panel about the bombing's impact on communities of color. It's held at the George Carver Washington Museum in East Austin. He changes his statement to that crowd, saying he actually does think Mark Condit was a domestic terrorist. We asked Chief Manley why he contradicted himself. Here's what he had to say. In all of my messaging regarding the bombings, I was being very aware and cautious of the fact that we may end up in a courtroom at some point prosecuting the bomber. And so therefore, anything that I say or release regarding the investigation would come up during that. And so in an absolute attempt not to muddy the waters with was this terrorism, was this not terrorism, what's the definition of terrorism, and having any of that implicate the the criminal case, that's why I did not call him a domestic terrorist early on in the investigation. But he told us that after the bomber died, he didn't have to worry about impacting an investigation. So that's why he became comfortable with referring to the bombings as domestic terrorism. But at the end of the investigation, it was very important for our community that we declare this a terrorist act. And when I looked back and looked at the the code and looked at some of the definitions and we were now in a state where we were not going to end up in a courtroom having to defend any of this or explain any of this where in a way it could complicate a prosecution since the bomber killed himself. I I felt it was important to do that. It's a decision that Chief Manley stands by three years later. What is a terrorist act, right? The intent is to create fear in a population. So at the end of the day, his acts, whether the creation of fear was intentional or not on his part, it was absolutely what had happened. In the hours after Condit's death, Chief Manley handles the public and investigators are still putting the pieces together. Who was Mark Condit? Why did he do this? And... What was he planning to do if he hadn't been caught? At the scene of the explosion, in the SUV Condit was driving, investigators find addresses of future victims. They're able to piece together where he'd been planning on striking next, so they pinpointed each address on a map. Chief Manley told us that the bombs that had gone off appeared to make a circle around the city of Austin which you can see if you plug all the addresses into Google Maps. But if you add in the addresses they found in Condit's truck, FBI agent Justin Wilson told us, they form a sort of arrow that seemed to point towards Pflugerville, the town Condit lived in. There's no way to know if that was purposeful or not, but it was one of the investigators' theories. Agents are also chasing down another lead a Reddit account that popped up about 12 hours before Mark Condit detonated the bomb inside his vehicle. The username is, quote, Austin Bomber. The Reddit user interacted with others on the site, saying that he wanted to watch the world burn. 
that the attacks weren't, quote, race-related like the media speculated. And he wrote, quote, I enjoy laughing at the massive police presence that simply cannot find or de-anonymize me. Here's FBI agent Justin Wilson again. There was a Reddit posting um, right before he, right before we locked him down and right before he detonated, there was a Reddit posting that we now believe was really him uh, that said, uh, you know, he was going to give us, uh, give cops something they couldn't, couldn't miss. But the Reddit posting, I don't, it was very difficult to get any identifiers. Uh, and we, we chased that to ground. However, we couldn't get, he, he obfuscated his identity enough to where we couldn't lock down who it was based on the Reddit post. Investigators will never know if it actually was Condit posting to Reddit, but they suspected it might have been. He did say some things in there that gave us an indication that he had some, he knew what he was, what, what the components were to the devices. Um, and that's what, that's what uh, we did believe it. We, we investigated it, but based on the fact we didn't get enough identities off of it, it really, other than just it was a statement on Reddit, it was very difficult for us to lock him down on that one. The day after Mark Condit's death, investigators execute a search warrant on his house. Bomb techs, chemists, and other investigators flock to the scene. But even though the bomber is dead, the threat isn't gone. Here's ATF agent Dan Muller. We're sending guys to a house that uh, we suspect this is where he's making bombs. And there's good reason to believe there's more there. And But could be a co-conspirator in there. could be another bomber. could be a, a scared roommate with a gun. So approaching that house uh, had its difficulties in that regard. Once they safely make it into the house, they find a workbench in his bedroom. It's full of material to build devices. He also had a blue footlocker, a big box full of wires, components, powders, enough to make several more bombs. The rubber gloves were in there, and the wig. Also inside was a construction hat and a reflective vest. Agents found so much explosive material in his closet, they had to move it off-site to detonate it safely. As investigators continue to gather evidence, somebody has to notify Mark Condit's parents of what happened to their son and who he was. But investigators didn't realize that his parents actually already knew before officials could tell them. Just before 5 a.m., a reporter from a local TV station had knocked on the front door of the home where the bomber's parents lived. When Mark Condit's father answered, the reporter said, quote, our sources tell us he is the suspected bomber here in Austin. Mark Condit's father simply replied, what? Officials told us Mark Condit's parents were polite, caring, and they kept a nice house. Here's ATF agent Dan Muller again. So uh, they knew him also to be kind of a, uh, you know, a loner, a little socially awkward. Um, but uh, they say there was never indica- any indication of, of being a sociopath like he was. And you're pulling sociopath from where was the indication of the word sociopath? He, is a, he self-described himself as a sociopath. When investigators later examined messages on Mark Condit's phone and laptop, they found conversations with his family. 
He would debate with his mom about religion, and he even discussed the bombings. Here's FBI agent Justin Wilson. He was very hyper-focused on anything involving reporting of the bombings. And some of the text messages he had with his family, he'd be like, oh, did you see the news? In the spring semester of 2012, Condit enrolled in a political theory class at Austin Community College. Throughout the semester, each student in his class kept a blog on blogspot.com, where they would each argue their political stances and make rebuttals to their classmates. Condit's blog was called, quote, Defining My Stance. In his bio, it says that he's from Pflugerville. Here's one of our producers reading what Condit wrote. My name is Mark Condit. I enjoy cycling, parkour, tennis, reading, and listening to music. I'm not that politically inclined. I view myself as a conservative, but I don't think I have enough information to defend my stance as well as it should be defended. The reasons I am taking this class is because I want to understand the U.S. government, and I hope that it will help me clarify my stance and then defend it. Mark Condit's friends told the FBI he would often show up at Bible study, but not because he was particularly religious, mainly because he liked the discussions. Friends said the youth pastor would bring up a topic, and Condit would come prepared to debate the topic at their next meeting. But, they said, he never came off as argumentative, violent, emotional, angry, or agitated. He just liked to debate. In the days and weeks after Mark Condit's death, the FBI's Behavioral Analysis Unit rechecks every piece of digital evidence from start to finish. That was 2,987 case files. Here's FBI agent Justin Wilson again. It's kind of like once he died, that's when a lot of the work really started because the search of the house, uh, the seizure of all his computers, his phones, um, every type of digital media we could possibly get. And we start going through all that and trying to find, you try to always figure out what made somebody tick and what made them do this, right? And I would love to sit here and tell you there was a silver bullet that I, oh, this answered all my questions. That was never found. What Agent Wilson did find, though, was indisputable evidence that Mark Condit worked alone. He had no accomplices. What I did find was things that ruled out the roommates, and I was able to do things. I found things that did not identify any other co-conspirator. Uh, he was definitely a huge loner. Um, his own man, his own recording, along with things I found in the things I found, but also didn't find. You didn't find anything indicating that he was inspired by any other outsider. The FBI finally closes the case nearly a year after the bombings in January 2019. Austin police kept the case open longer, but according to what they found in their investigation, there wasn't any evidence to indicate that this was a hate crime, despite the first victims being people of color. They never found solid connections between the victims or with Condit, just loose affiliations from living in the same community, sharing a church, a haircut parlor, that sort of thing. They confirmed all the explosive devices used snap battery holders with snap connectors, which Condit used his bank card to buy at Fry's Electronics. FBI agent Justin Wilson says he could have spent the next 10 years of his career looking into lingering questions. But eventually, you accept it's time to move on. 
This by far is the most uh, complex and intense case I've worked. Uh, the, the speed at which you had to keep going um, was intense. Um, uh, knock on wood, I've not ever worked another serial bomber. And, um, you know, if I make it the rest of my career without working another serial bomber, I guess that would be a good thing. Interim Police Chief Brian Manley, who was officially appointed police chief months after the bombings, says the case still haunts him. We always say that no two cases are the same, but this one is absolutely beyond anything that we have ever experienced as an agency or as a community and really as an American society. To have a bomber attacking a city over a course of several weeks with repeated bombing attacks, we have not seen something like this in decades. And so there's really no comparison here. FBI agent Jordana Nesvog, the investigator who ID'd Mark Condit, says the case sticks with her too. You just um, kind of dial in to the familiar mindset of, I have a job to do, and these are people's lives, and lives have been lost, and this is why I do what I do, is because people deserve to be safe wherever they are, going about their daily business, and I believe, I believe in justice, and I believe in good over evil, and, um, and so I kind of dial into that mindset in order to do the job I need to do. But with that knowledge that, you know, I'm, I'm seeing stuff that is, um, you know, that stays with you. And um, so, you know, fast forward to the Austin bombing, I, I definitely felt that. And with Ms. Herrera, one of the things I've loved is, you know, seeing her uh, very joyful face on, on the, um, on the different shows and um, her being interviewed and you know that really brings me a lot of joy and um, you know it really solidifies why I do what I do and so um, yeah there were different definitely moments during this bombing investigation where I had to uh, I had to focus on that you know this is why I'm here this is why I do what I do and this might be tough stuff that I will you know, encounter later, but it's familiar. I'm not alone. We're a team. The bombings made national news. President Donald Trump even tweeted congratulating law enforcement after Mark Condit died, writing in all caps, quote, Austin bombing suspect is dead. Great job by law enforcement and all concerned, end quote. It's been more than three years, and by now, many people have forgotten about it. But the victims haven't. They're still recovering. In her closet, Hope Herrera keeps every newspaper clipping with her name. When we look through the photos, she smiles when she sees her mom, who died less than a year after the bombings. And photos of the home surrounded by police tape take her down memory lane. Hope has had 18 surgeries since March 2018 and is working on pain management. When we first talked to Hope, she told us her injured knee had begun to bother her again. They tried injecting pain relief medication into her knee, but it didn't help. So her doctor suggested physical therapy, and she tried that for a while, but it only made things hurt more. She wasn't getting any relief. When her doctor suggested another knee surgery, 
Hope declined. She couldn't go through that again, especially at the out-of-pocket cost of $500, with no real reassurance it would work. Now, she takes one pain pill twice a day. She rubs CBD oil on her knee. She says that helps. She is a lot more independent now. She lives with her husband in her own home and has more practice in taking care of herself. She sometimes has to shout for help from her husband to reach pots and pans to cook in her kitchen. And when we talked to her this summer, she was still waiting on her grandkids to help her take down the Christmas tree in the living room. But she keeps a positive attitude about it all. She has trouble sleeping. In one of our last interviews, she told us she woke up in the middle of the night and felt like crying. But she told herself that people have it worse than her. So she still gets up every day and does what she needs to do. Every time we talked with Hope, she cried. But her granddaughter Jackie made it clear that her tears do not take away from her strength. Jackie thinks Hope's story can be encouragement for others. I actually ended up um, seeing this amazing woman that was so strong. She doesn't see it, but she's the strongest woman in our whole family. And I just wanted people to also see that as well. You know, like seeing someone like four foot eight, so tiny, but you know, pushing through everything. Even if you're crying, that's one thing that I've learned. Like crying does not make you weak at all. It's just showing you like getting through it. The two tripwire victims have spent the last three years out of the media's attention, wanting to heal on their own in private. Many of the victims' families have done the same. Draylen Mason would have been 21 years old. Stefan House's young daughter is without a father. Time has passed, but the wounds still feel fresh. Many people still believe that it was a hate crime that when looking at the history of the targeted neighborhoods in East Austin, there was no way the bomber could have possibly not known. For Melanie House, the mother of the first bombing victim, not having the complete story is the hardest part. How am I doing now? Well, tomorrow is his birthday. June the 15th would be his birthday. Um, I just pulled up his picture and put it on my phone. As a reminder, do I miss him? Yes. Am I still angry? Not, not as much, but it is there. Um, have I come to grips as to how the situation was handled? No, I have not. Will I? I can't say if I will or will not. I just know that at this point, this day, I still am unsure as to why this even happened to begin with. Season two of Darkness is reported, hosted, written, and directed by me, Ashley Miznazi. This podcast is presented by The Drag, 
a student-run audio production house at the University of Texas at Austin's Moody College of Communication. Katie penchik outka and Robert Quigley are the executive producers. This podcast was also reported and written by Kenny Jones. The editor is Katie penchik outka The associate producers are Austin Cheatham, Libby Cohen, Alexandra Curry-Buckner, Cecilia Garzella, Gregory Gonzalez, Anastasia Goodwin, Jake Herman, Jackie Ibarra, Marian Navarro, Ileana Rowland, Sarah Schleed, Aidan Snazdell, and Harrison Young. Their artwork was created by Helen Holsey. Christian McDonald is the drag's technical director. A huge thank you to Leslie Schrock for all of her support and guidance. I also want to thank Jay Bernhardt, Kathleen McElroy, Rachel Davis-Mercy, Allison Dawson, Kathleen Mabley, Emily Quigley, Jay Whitman, Eric Tang, Robert Vilwalk, and Ryan Outka. Special thanks to Grace Spees, Marcus Crum, Raul Garcia, Dylan Lee, Jennifer Robbins, Tasha Turner, Amanda Cisneros, Jenny Nelson Gray, and Tiffany Ma. The Drag is a nonprofit educational organization that is made possible by donors like you. Please support our work by going to thedragaudio.com/donate. Every dollar goes directly to producing more content like this while giving students an amazing educational experience. Thank you.